All right, what is up, Summit Church? Today is kind of the Josh Cook farewell tour, you know, so uh, get excited about that. There's merch out in the lobby afterwards if that's your game. It'll be just a picture of me standing right here, actually, on a t-shirt, but uh, they're $50, so it's a good deal. Um, Anyway, I took that joke longer than I ever took it all day long, just because you guys are the 5 p.m., and you're my favorite, and I love you. And uh, I want to say that uh, it's been amazing here at the Summit Church for the past year. I can't believe that it's been a full year that we've been rolling with you guys, and uh, I just want to say thanks. So as we felt God calling us to come and plant this church in Denver, I envisioned our first a uh, few months here as being, you know, just super lonely time where we move into a city where we don't even know anybody and crazy difficult and stuff like that. But instead, just the opposite has happened and that we've been welcomed into your Summit Church family and we thank you so much for that. We love all the friends that we've made here, all of the even mentors and leaders that we've been able to connect with here. It's been a great time of learning and also just a very encouraging time. So thank you so much. I'd like to open, if I could, by just praying for you guys. Um, Would you guys pray with me? Dear God, we thank you so much for the Summit Church. God, we thank you for this body of believers that you have called and put here in the city of Denver uh, to live for your kingdom and your glory, God. We pray that you would continue to give them wisdom, God, order their steps and empower and encourage them to be missionaries here in the city of Denver, Colorado, God. We thank you so much for the ways in which you've blessed them already, and we we pray for many, many more years of fruitful and uh, impactful ministry here in the city. God, we love you. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for giving us your word. God, please give us uh, your words to hear tonight and speak to each and every one of our souls. Give us the message that you know that we need to hear, and it's in your name we pray. Amen. So, we're talking about the Ten Commandments, and uh, I don't want to overstate things here, but it may be the most culturally recognizable section of all of Scripture. Everybody knows what the Ten Commandments are, right? They're kind of everywhere. I started doing some thinking about some of my top, most influential uh, cultural moments of the Ten Commandments, and of course, that Charlton Heston movie, the old The Ten Commandments movie, came to mind. They actually made a musical version of that that was sort of like an off-Broadway musical of the Ten Commandments, and instead of Charlton Heston, the lead character was none other than Val Kilmer. All right, so you know, he did Iceman and Top Gun, then he was Batman later on, and then he went on to play Moses. Now, what's really interesting about that that you only know if you're a big fan of movies about Moses or you are an extreme Val Kilmer fan, which after the gathering, I want to talk to you if that's you. If you already know what I'm going to say, I really want to give you some props because he was also the voice of Moses in The Prince of Egypt in that cartoon version, both the singing and the speaking parts. This is insane, right? Like, I think I like the Ten Commandments a lot, but I don't think I hold a candle to how much Val Kilmer must love the Ten Commandments to play this role twice. Um, Another big Ten Commandments fan was actually the notorious B.I.G., or Biggie, if you will, all right? He actually wrote a song where he paid basically homage to the Ten Commandments, and this song was entitled The Ten Crack Commandments, where he offered up a command to say, don't sell crack where you rest at. Right? Which is good advice. (laughs) Right? Something I try to live by. Right? I think it makes good sense. 
Finally, I think the best example of seeing the Ten Commandments in popular culture is in the film The Raiders of the Lost Ark, one of the greatest films of all time in the beginning of the Indiana Jones series, right? So they hunt down and find this uh, lost Ark of the Covenant, and then they take it to the secret island, and then these Nazis decide to open it up, and what happens? Their faces melt off. And every child has nightmares for months later because it's the most graphic and disgusting thing on all of television. Now, imagine for a moment if your only interaction with the Ten Commandments was having seen Raiders of the Lost Ark, you would probably be entering even this moment right now with a lot of fear and trepidation. Well, let me put you at ease to say that I don't think anyone's faces are going to melt off just through the course of this sermon. It hasn't happened all day. I don't want to promise, but I want to say that that's not my intention. And so we, I think we're going to end up better off and not as melty than, uh, than the people from the Raiders of the Lost Ark, all right? Um, so now I say all that to say everybody knows the Ten Commandments. And because of that, we may enter into this sermon and thinking about the Ten Commandments with sort of a sense of like callousness, you know, like, oh, I've heard that before. Or maybe it's sort of like a sense of apathy. Or maybe it's even a sense of like, oh, geez, here's 10 more rules this guy's going to try and like put on my life. But what if we thought about it a different way? First off, what if we looked at it as if it was a gift from the Creator? I mean, just to put it in context, uh, the Bible speaks of God creating the entire universe. God creates everything everything that is. He creates humanity. He creates everything that is living. He orders it and structures it the way that he wants, uh, wants it to be. And then he gives us these Ten Commandments. You know, everybody's looking for some sort of like secret to life, like what do I need to flourish in life? What do I need to be well? And I think from the creator of life, if he ever hands down sort of a 10 bullet pointed list for you, I think that might constitute as a secret to life, right? I mean, it's like he's saying, if you want to live the best life possible, if you want to live the life I designed you to live, here are 10 ways to do that. A gift straight from the Creator. It's also sort of a climax in our story that we've been looking at so far. So uh, the Bible starts with the book of Genesis, and it talks about God's creation. And then we follow the story, and we pick it up through Exodus, where we see him releasing his people from slavery and genocide and saving them and setting them free. And then the next thing he does is give them the law, which the pinnacle of the law is the Ten Commandments. And what's interesting is that when the Israelite people, and really throughout the entire Bible, when they look back on the Old Testament, they group these four books, the first four books, into a section, and they refer to it as the law. They don't refer to it as the fantastic story of God creating everything and then saving his people. They refer to it as the law. And so after this moment where God destroyed the greatest military power on the planet at the time, which was the Egyptians, and after this moment where he saved his people from generations of slavery and genocide, and after this moment where he subverted the rules of gravity to make the waters of the Red Sea stand up and his people to walk through on dry land, then they get the law, and that's the part that they want to focus on. That's the gift that they want to see, which is not at all how I tend to approach this text. I'm not nearly as excited about it as they seem to be. Finally, we can think more of the Ten Commandments as a constitution rather than a set of rules. A constitution rather than a set of rules. They actually function a lot more uh, like our U.S. Constitution, you know, the sort of life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness, all that jazz kind of thing, than they do like specific laws, right? Uh, So they're supposed to be these overarching themes from which you should be able to apply to certain situations and to better understand how you ought to act in life. 
These are supposed to be sort of universally applicable truths that we might be able to apply to our lives. So they work much more like a constitution than a speed limit or, or a zoning law kind of thing, which is very often how we look at them. And they're for the whole world. They're not just for Israel. We saw in chapter 19 with Andy last week, he brought up the fact that uh, the Bible says that the Israelites were to be a kingdom of priests. And then right after he calls, God calls them a kingdom of priests, a kingdom for himself, then he gives them these Ten Commandments. So he's not just saying, hey, Israel, you're a group unto yourself, so I'm going to give you these ways to live, and it's going to be really good for you. No, he's saying, I'm going to give you these ways to live so that you might be a priestly nation, so you might be mediators of my word to the rest of the world. And so Israel, living out these Ten Commandments, modeling that for everyone else, is supposed to be a benefit for the entire earth. They're supposed to be the bringers of God's word and God's gift of these Ten Commandments to the rest of the planet. These are no mere rules. These are no quick, easy, you know, self-help books. These are a gift from God. And so today we're going to jump in and we're going to do the first four. Now, you may be wondering why I break them up in groups of four and then Brian is next week going to do uh, the, the later six of them. It's actually because this is the way that Jesus breaks them down. So if you see in Matthew 22, verses 37 through 40, Jesus says, after someone asked him, what is the greatest commandment? He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. What he's doing there is taking actually the first four commandments and condensing them into one sort of singular thought, you shall love the Lord your God, right? And so uh, the first four commandments deal with mankind, humanity's relationship with God. I'm using sort of like this vertical kind of or versus horizontal kind of thought, so uh, First is humanity's relationship with God, and then second is humanity's relationship with each other. And so Jesus actually ends up grouping these two things into love your God and love your neighbor, very simply. And so today we're going to be looking at the first four. All right, so let's jump right in. In verse one, it says, and God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Now what he's doing here is two things. First off, he is reminding them who he is. So before he gives them this law, before he gives them these commandments, he is reminding them who he is. And it's not sort of a, you know, like, I brought you into this world, I can take you out kind of thought. It's more so a thought of saying, hey, remember when you obeyed what I said and I took you out of Israel? Remember when you followed my commands and it worked out really, really well for you? Well, listen up, I'm about to give you some more, right? That would sort of perk everyone's attention. Now, the second thing that would really get everyone's attention is uh, sort of there in the text it says, and God spoke all these words. Now, what it doesn't say is that God spoke all these words to Moses. And in fact, scholars believe that potentially God was actually saying these words to all the people. So much of the rest of the law and stuff that we see in Exodus, God is giving to Moses, then he's passing along to the people. But we see the reason why we think this is actually God speaking directly to all of them is actually because of verse 18. It says, Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountains smoking, the people were afraid and trembled and they stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us and we will listen and do not let God speak to us lest we die. So basically after having God speak to them these Ten Commandments, they were so freaked out. They were like, Moses, don't do this again. From now on, you go up on top of the mountain, let God talk to you, and then we'll talk to you afterwards, and you tell us what he said, all right? 
Maybe they caught wind of the whole Raiders of the Lost Ark like face-melting thing and were a little bit concerned that was going to happen. Or maybe it was just such a profound and terrifying experience to actually get these commandments from God that they were so scared that they had to ask Moses to be their mediator. That's a fascinating thing because it shows just how big of a deal these Ten Commandments are, that God did not even want there to be sort of like any confusion. God wanted to speak these directly to the Israelite people so that everyone knew exactly what they were. So let's jump right into the first one. The first one is love God alone. And we see this in verse 3. It says, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall have no other gods before me. Now, these commandments are scaffolded. They're kind of like built off of one another. And so this one is the first one. And the reason why this is first, why this is primary, is because God is the foundation of all morality. God is the foundation of all morality. And so before he goes through and gives you sort of a moral code by which to live your life, he reminds you that he is God and that he comes first. You know, good oftentimes in our culture can be thought of as like something that we have, you know, as like a social contract or, or even like an evolutionary construct. Good is just something that we've all sort of agreed upon is, you know, best for society. Like good is something that just helps us run smoothly and harmoniously and not get in too many disputes. But actually the scriptures show us that good comes directly from God, from who he is. We see this in the creation narrative when God is creating everything that ever was and after he sees the things that he's created, he repeats this phrase over and over again. It is good, it is good, it is good. And these things are all coming directly from him. He's creating them out of nothing except of out of himself. And we know that God is good and so these things that he created then are good and so goodness emanates from who God is. You can think of it this way, uh, good is not something that is contrived by man, but good is something that is derived from God. All right, Good is not contrived from man, good is derived from God. It is something that comes out of who he is. And so he sets this as the very first commandment to say, I am the Lord your God, you shall have no other gods before me. If he is good and he is the foundation of all reality, then it makes sense that we wouldn't have any other gods than him, right? Especially as we're thinking about what is good and what our morality should be, then we have to start with recognizing that there is only one God and there is only one true God and he is the founder of all morality. So how exactly do we observe this law then? What does it mean to have no other gods than God? I think Jesus actually sums it up still in that Matthew 22 passage when he says, you shall love your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. He's actually not inventing that in this part of scripture that comes from an earlier piece. He's making reference to this part of scripture called the Shema, which is Deuteronomy 6.4. And if you think about like the Israelite, you know, constitution as being the Ten Commandments, then the Shema was probably like the Pledge of Allegiance, right? It was something that they would say as a part of their worship they would recognize very often. And it's just a recognition that their highest calling in life is to love God, very simply. That what they're supposed to be doing in life is loving God. And it makes good sense, right? If God wants to make this command that says, you need to recognize me as exclusive, you need to have no other gods before me, then loving God is the absolute proper response, the absolute proper way to do that, right? So if I think about my relationship with my wife, I don't show her that we are exclusive to her, just, or not we are, that's a weird sentence. I don't show her that I am exclusive to her just by saying, hey, uh, Sarah, I don't know if you've noticed, but I don't really have any other wives, so 
you should feel good about that. Congrats. No, I show her through love. Love is the way in which we manifest sort of exclusivity. I have a special love for my daughter that I don't have for any other of the kids in the rest of the world, right? Like the love sort of part and parcel of this love is this exclusivity. And so the way that we show God that he is our only one and true God and the way that we put no other gods before him is to love him. And so that's why all the rest of the commandments have to follow after this uh, first commandment, because they are all built off of the idea of loving God. In fact, Martin Luther says it this way when he's talking about the Ten Commandments. He said, where the heart is rightly disposed towards God and this commandment is observed, all the others follow. Where the heart is rightly disposed toward God and this commandment is observed, all the others follow. He's recognizing that when our heart is in a right condition, as it pertains to God, which is to love him, then we are able to follow all the other commandments. Not out of any other sort of, you know, a power or skill that we have in ourselves, but only out of our intense, desirous love for who God is. I like to think of it like this way. Um, I, this is probably a terrible analogy, but I've been using it all day and I'm stuck to it now. So uh, basically, I like to think of it as boxing. And the reason why uh, this analogy is terrible is because I know absolutely nothing of boxing. But I get the impression that it's not, I'm, even when I, when I ball up my fists, like I get chuckles all day. This is what I've been noticing. So I have to like stand like this and talk about boxing academically. Um, I, or else I get kind of into it. So um, it's not just about punching and ducking and all that kind of stuff. I think it starts somewhere else. I think it starts in your orientation to the other fighter, right? I think it starts in sort of like your position in relation to the person in which you're fighting. So if I'm fighting this music stand, it doesn't really help me if I'm sort of standing out of reach. It also doesn't help me if I'm sort of standing like on my heels with my feet together. I feel like they're going to punch me and I'm just going to like completely fall right over, right? You got to have sort of like the right stance. That's why Rocky looks so intense when he's like, you know, shuffling his feet and stuff like that, right? Like you have to have the proper orientation. I believe it's the exact same way with these commandments because when we orient ourselves to God correctly in this very first one, then and only then are we able to follow the rest. And as I've said before, that correct orientation, the only proper orientation to a God who is this good is to show him love. So the first command is to love God alone. Second command is to love God by not loving the gods you created. Love God by not loving the gods you created. We see this in verse 4. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Now you may hear that and you may think to yourself, okay, check, I've got this one covered. I have never cut down a tree in my backyard and carved it into a little idol image and started bowing down and worshiping it, right? Like, I'm in the clear. Now, if what I said earlier about these being more constitution than case law, uh, if that's true, then this uh, commandment has to mean more than this, right? It can't be just applying to, you know, this sort of uh, ancient practice of, of idol worship kind of thing. And I think what it's talking about here is much more along the lines of you should not worship gods that you create yourself. You should not worship gods that you create yourself. 
And I, I know that may sound kind of crazy at first, but I think that we do this pretty often. I think that we're all in some ways kind of guilty of this. I think especially in Denver, there's sort of this... Uh, there's sort of this uh, self-created God of like spirituality, this idea like, hey, uh, I don't want to be really religious, but I'm kind of a spiritual person. And so what ends up happening is you create this sort of hazy image of who God is. And you say, well, there's a lot that's unknowable about God. And, you know, I've had some bad experiences with religious people. So I'm just going to sort of leave this very like hazy picture of God in my mind and and be just sort of generally spiritual, generally worship this this thing in my mind, right? But I think, as I like pictured this in my mind, uh, you tend to notice that this God tends to reflect the things that you think are good, right? So this God has the same opinion about what's good as you do. Uh, This God tends to be behind the same social causes that you are. Uh, This God tends to think about things the same way that you do. And really, in fact, when you cut through all the haze, and if you ever were to sort of pin this God down, I think what would happen is you'd realize that this God is actually you. That after, you know, creating this sort of bubble of haze around this God, uh, you cover up the fact that on the throne where God should be is actually you sitting there. And what's really sad and what's really heartbreaking about this is that there is a very real God who has, in a very tangible way through his scriptures, revealed himself to the world, and he is watching all of this go down. And his heart is breaking after you're chasing after a false God that you've created, while all he wants to do is love you. All he wants to do is give you more than you could have ever asked for. All he wants to do is to help you to live life the way that you wanted, and then one day give you eternal life in heaven. But for the rest of you in this room who are thinking, well, that's not really me. I don't really uh, do that. I I believe in the one true God. I think an even potentially more heartbreaking or equally heartbreaking story kind of happens where you find this one true God, you recognize that he actually is on the throne, and yet still you turn away from him and seek other things to make you happy. I mean, I do it all the time, right? It's sort of like a recognition. Hey, God, I know that you're in control, and I know that you're my only source of fulfillment and joy in, in my life, but I just had a really emotionally difficult day, and so I'm going to turn to Netflix to make me feel a little bit better. Or, hey, God, I know that you value me as a person, and I know that you say that I am loved by you, and that should be enough for me, but I really, really, really just want to be loved by that person. That's really important to me. I want, to, I want them to sort of offer value into my life. Or maybe it's even saying, hey, God, I know that you said that you're going to provide for me, but I'm going to work like crazy to make sure that I have more than enough money that I need so that I can feel a little bit more comfortable in my life and secure in the control that I have over my life. It basically all boils down to this idea. And when we, these self-created gods are basically a way of saying, hey, God, I know you've promised me fulfillment. I know you've promised me more true joy than I could ever create myself. I know that you've promised me eternal life. I know that you've promised me providence here on earth. I know that you've promised me value. But I'm going to try and do it myself. And what happens then is we end up putting ourselves on the throne where only God should sit. And I don't know about you, but I am in no condition. I know myself well enough to know that I am in no way, shape, or form fit to run the entire universe. But there's a God who is and who loves me and wants even better for me than I want for myself. So we love God by having no other self-created gods ahead of him. 
Next, we love God by respecting his name, and we see this in verse 7. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Now, this language in vain can be translated kind of like frivolously or meaninglessly, um, you know, sort of like using it even for your sort of own uh, sort of useless kind of gain. It's kind of a, an odd word. And when I was growing up, I used to think that this was only about like avoiding saying a few words or phrases, right? Like I can't say GD when I stub my toe or, you know, I can't say OMG when I uh, eat a brownie. I accidentally said the real words in the sermon meeting and I got in a lot of trouble, so I'm having to use the acronyms now. Um, so, you know, I can't say like, JC when somebody like, you know, steps on my finger or something like that. And I can't say like ATFG whenever somebody like, I'm just kidding. I just made that one up. (laughs) I wanted to see if anyone would have anything for that. Like, yeah, yeah. It said that yesterday. When I was growing up, I thought that was all this commandment was. But if you put it next to the other commandments, it seems a little silly for that to be all that it is, right? When you put it next to do not murder, don't say these certain phrases seems almost kind of odd to us. And I'm not saying that you should go off and say those words. No, I definitely think that you shouldn't. But I'm saying that it has to mean more than that. It has to be speaking to something deeper than that. So I started thinking about naming. Uh, we, I have a daughter who's 16 months old. And uh, so it wasn't very long ago that we were in the just crazy uh, emotional process of trying to pick out a baby name. It's really, really difficult for any of you guys who haven't tried it yet. They make it sound so easy on television, but it is not, all right? And so um, we actually, we came to, we first started looking into like family names, and uh, my grandparents' names are Geraldine and Dura, and so that was kind of like a non-starter for us, you know? Like, uh, you don't see many Duras around anymore, and uh, I've never met another Geraldine. I don't even know where that came from, all right? Um, My grandmother actually went by Jerry, but spelled it a completely different way. Anyway, so, um, yeah, so we couldn't use a family name, plus my family has a history of just absolutely destroying the spelling on names, and uh, so that was kind of like a non-starter for us. So that meant that the rest of the world of names were open to us, right? So then we just had everything and anything. And we ended up settling on this name. I say settling. We believe that it's the right name for her. We're not going to change it. That sounded bad. Don't tell her I said this. So uh, we came to this name, Evangeline, which has special significance in the city of New Orleans where my daughter was born. And uh, even more so than that, it's sort of a French derivation of the word for good news. It's the same root word that we get the word evangelism from. Okay, so sharing of good news. We really wanted her name to be a representation of the good news of Jesus Christ. We even wanted it to be a tool for her to be able to speak about what's hopefully going to one day be the most important thing about her in her life. We wanted to give her a, a sort of way of saying, like, this is who I am through a very beautiful name that speaks a very beautiful truth. We got really excited about it. And now that she's been here for a few months, we call her Evie all the time and never use her beautiful, wonderful name that we like picked out and slaved over so hard. I called her Evangeline the other day and she didn't even look at me, right? She's just toddling around and ignoring me completely. So if we went through all this work, and if I believe that names have all this meaning for my daughter's name, what would happen if we tried to apply that to the name of the Lord? 
And actually here in this passage, it says, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. That word Lord in your Bible is probably L-O-R-D, capital letters, but in sort of like small text. It's kind of interesting. It's like that in most Bibles. It's a way of sort of pointing out the uniqueness of this name. This is the name that God gave to Moses earlier in this book when, he said, when he's like in front of the burning bush and Moses says, uh, God, who am I to say sent me? And God says to him, I am. Now, even that translation of the word I am is a little bit reductionist. It's more of saying like I am and will be. It sort of more even speaks to this like existence kind of thing where God is like, I pre-exist everything and everything exists because of me. This word is often translated as like Yahweh, but even that, and the reason why it looks funny in our Bible today is because when the Bible writers were writing it down, they wouldn't even put the, value, the vowels in to make sure that you saw that this was a very particular name. In fact, we don't even know what the proper vowels are. This, these, uh, the A and the E were sort of added in later as a way for us to understand this term because People believed, and because as Moses was given this word, this name to call God, basically it was like a placeholder. It was a way of saying, I am everything that exists, and I am bigger than all of existence, and even if I gave you my name, there wouldn't even be any human language for you to wrap around it. In fact, our our finite human minds can't even conceive of the name of God. And so if that's his name, it should never be a punchline. It should never be an expletive. It's funny that we even have to say that, that we even have this temptation because we hear other people use it in a funny way to like think like, yeah, I should do that. We cannot use the name of the Lord that way. It also should make us think about uh, marriage. Marriage is a time in which we come together and we say, like, we are doing this in the name of the Lord. We are doing this in front of God and these witnesses. And yet marriages today are so sort of easily and flippantly broken. When yet if the name of the Lord is sort of stamped on the very beginning of your marriage, that is a commitment that you're making not only to your spouse but also to him. Him whose name is bigger than we could ever possibly conceive of. Think about, too, the way that we pray. We always finish that by saying, in Jesus' name or in God's name we pray. And we're putting his name on the end of our prayers. And it's not just sort of like an easy way to finish so that everyone knows when to say amen. It's a way of saying, God, this prayer is not just what I want, but I am trying to say that this is what I hope that you want. Like I'm trying to sort of say this is a prayer that I want you to accomplish in the world. I'm recognizing that you are the one that has the power to complete this prayer, not myself. And so that should really make us think about what we pray about. That should really make us concerned about what it is that we are praying for. If we're going to end it by saying in God's name. There's probably a million different examples, but basically the point is this. We are not to use God's name frivolously. We are to pay it as much honor and as much respect as we possibly know how. The fourth commandment is to love God by keeping the Sabbath. Verse 8, it says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall 
not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. It's really interesting as I was doing a little bit of research, I found that there is no comparison for this commandment throughout the rest of the ancient Eastern world or ancient Near Eastern world. There was no other culture that had any sort of you should take a day off kind of rule. And if you think about it, it doesn't necessarily make sense, especially when you're sort of like living off of what you can sort of hunt and gather and farm. Like it makes the most sense to work a little bit every day so that you can actually survive. But instead, God lays out this commandment for his people. And the best part is, it's like he knew he was going to get some pushback on this one, right? He was like, all right, so I'm going to need you to take a day off. Like, yeah, I know you can barely gather enough food or get enough shelter or do all the things that you can possibly do in seven full days a week, but I need you to take one day off. And the reason is that I did it before. And not only did I do it before, but in the most productive work week in the entire history of the universe... I took a day off. It's like if we want to complain about it, God's like almost looking up there laughing like, you know, if you have a week that's productive as mine, then you can maybe think about not taking a week off, right? Because it never, ever happens. Like this was the week where God created everything and he decided to take a day off on that week. It's also really interesting to me that this commandment, they make special notice that this should apply to all. It's not just you and your household, it's even your children, it's even your livestock, and it's even the visitors or the sojourners, the people from other countries who are living with you. So in the Israelite you know, times, these were the people that were coming in, they probably didn't believe in the same God, they were probably from a radically different culture, they were probably just helping out. I mean, if you think about it, these people may have even been sort of lower rungs of society, because you've got these uh, Israelite people wandering in the desert. And they're sort of, they don't have a home. They're just sort of wandering around, you know, all this time. So if you leave your country, your people, uh, and travel to another land and end up working for an Israelite, like how bad of shape do you have to be in? So then for that person to show up to you and say, hey, can I get a job? Can I work for you? And say, yeah, we work six days and then you get a day off. That's a radically gracious thought. That's a radically beautiful picture to offer to this visitor that's staying with you. Now, uh, the Sabbath is sort of presented in a twofold fashion. There's only kind of two rules, and um, basically they, they condense down to this. First off, they are, the Sabbath is to be set aside for the Lord. Sabbath is to be set aside for God. It says, keep the Sabbath holy for the Lord. And then secondly, uh, it says that you shall do no work. Do no work, so you rest from your work. So what I want to do now as we sort of process this commandment is I don't want to give you like a bunch of examples and create some sort of like Sabbath checklist because I really do believe that each of us are wired a little bit differently and that means that our Sabbaths are going to look a little bit differently from each other. What I would love for you to do right now is as we just think and process this together is to almost take like a Sabbath audit for yourself. Like how are you doing at taking a Sabbath? The first question that you have to ask is, is it restful? Are you resting? You know, are you avoiding work in some form or fashion? Are you turning off your emails or are you uh, making sure that you finish your homework on Saturday so you don't have to do it on Sunday? Are you taking intentional steps to get away from work? The second question is, are you setting it aside for the Lord? And for this, I really, I think it could look a number of different ways. I think that 
Even coming here is a large part of that. I think that joining together with other believers, centering around God and around his word and joining and singing together, joining and studying his word together, joining in the taking communion is a beautiful picture of setting aside intentionally this time for God. And so ask yourself, how well are you doing at reserving, at keeping this time for him? How well are you doing even in sort of personal modes of worship and personal intentional moments on the Sabbath day to set aside for God? How well are you doing at spending this extra time with him? As I've been thinking about this, it's kind of like this idea uh, that a lot of married couples do where they have like date night or even sort of like more long-term relationships where you have date night. So, you know, you may eat dinner together every single night This was like a big problem for Sarah and I, especially before we had Evie, because it was like, well, we eat dinner together every night. Does that count? And sometimes we don't even feel like cooking, so uh, we can just go to a restaurant. So does that count as date night? And what we found is that we needed to sort of factor into our regular rhythms a time where we just said like, hey, this is a special night. This is a night where we can go out and be together and be intentional about that, where we can give this night to one another and say, this is a night where we want to rejuvenate, recharge, reconnect our relationship with one another. That's exactly what the Sabbath was meant to be with God. We turn away from all the, all the work, all the challenges, everything that we face throughout this entire week, and we say, God, this is a time... You know, I've had six days where my mind has been all over the place, and yes, I've been trying to worship you, and yes, I've been trying to show love to you, but today I'm going to focus, and I'm going to offer to you this day to say, how can I love you even more? How can that be even my sole focus and goal for just one day out of the week? We love God by keeping his Sabbath holy. Finally, we love God by living in his grace. I talked earlier about what the law is and what it does, but uh, I, think it, I think it does two things really well. Uh, first off, these commandments give us a target to shoot at. They give us something to aim for. This is how we ought to be living. But in doing that, they also show us where we miss that target. Right? It's sort of like the simultaneous thing where they give us something to aim at, but in giving us something to aim at, they help us realize that we actually miss it. Paul actually says it this way in Romans chapter 3, verse 20. He says, For by works of the law no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Through the law comes knowledge of sin. We recognize that we have sinned because we have these commandments. Paul goes on to say, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through his redemption that is in Jesus, in Christ Jesus. You see, the truth is, And this is sort of the the knowledge that the law brings about is that you can try to live out these Ten Commandments. You can try your hardest to make sure that you follow them to the letter, but ultimately you will fail. If you look back on your life, you probably have already failed. I even recognize this sort of terrible gut-wrenching truth that I failed at living out these Ten Commandments as I was preparing a sermon to teach on these Ten Commandments. I mean, how much hypocrisy is that, right? 
We can't make it. The law provides a target and lets us know that we've missed it. But even more, it lets us know something, a beautiful truth. It lets us know just how badly we need someone else who can live out these commandments. It lets us know how badly we need someone to fulfill this law. It lets us know how badly we need someone to take on our punishment for not living out this law. It lets us know how badly we need Jesus Christ. So he's the one that perfectly lived out this law. And in exchanging his reward for perfectly living out this law, for death on the cross, now we who cannot live out this law get to accept his reward as he takes on our punishment. It's sort of the most backwards exchange in the history of the universe where God steps in and sends his son to fulfill the law that he gave to us that we were never able to live up to anyway. It's this sort of backwards exchange where we bring our sin, we bring our brokenness, we bring our failures to God, and in exchange, he gives us eternal life. And his son, Jesus, is the one that pays the price. And so to all of us, I hope that you don't leave today with a checklist of a brand new, you know, like these are things I need to do so that God can like me. Like I need to make sure and add these four commandments to just every single thing that I do. No, I, I, I want you to keep using them as a target. They should be something that we still hope for. But more than that, I want you to leave with the blessed knowledge that the law brings that we are sinners in need of God. And that Jesus Christ has already paid that price and offered that gift freely to us. Would you guys pray with me? Dear God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your law. Thank you for the target that you've given us to aim for, God. And most importantly, we thank you for Jesus Christ who steps in, who covers up our sin, who covers up our shame and our guilt, God, and exchanges for it his righteousness. God, we thank you for that beautiful gift. May we live in light of that righteousness. May we show you constantly how much we love you by living in that grace that you have given to us. God, we love you. Thank you for loving us, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.